0: What if they held a synod and nobody showed up? Well, I expect the answer is exactly what was going to happen anyway. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. And as you may have ascertained, we're going to be talking today about the synod on synodality and why I believe it's an attempt at a virtual Vatican III, that is, an attempt to institutionalize the spirit of Vatican II the agency of the authentic magisterium, that is to say the non-infallible magisterium of the Pope. In fact, that nebulous spirit has already been explicitly invoked. But both you and I know that the letter of Vatican II is quite a different thing than its so-called spirit. So uh, to put it another way, the Synod on Synodality may be understood as an attempt to make the hermeneutic of rupture the official interpretation of Vatican II. And, and I've often spoken about the hermeneutic of rupture and how Pope Benedict XVI insisted instead on an alternative hermeneutic of continuity. And this actually goes back to yet another synod of bishops. In 1985, after 20 years of post-Vatican II chaos, Pope St. John Paul II convened an extraordinary synod of bishops specifically to answer the question, what hath Vatican II wrought? This synod was the genesis of what would become known as the hermeneutic of continuity, meaning that the ecumenical council, Vatican II, was simply part of the Church's tradition and therefore must be interpreted in line with the 20 ecumenical councils that preceded it, which is over and against the false position known as the hermeneutic of rupture, which holds that the council was a break with the past and that 2,000 years of tradition should be reinterpreted in light of Vatican II. So during the pontificate of John Paul II, the hermeneutic of continuity really became the official position of the Church, although hardly anybody seemed to notice. And that's because on the ground, at the level of the local Catholic university, the local diocese, the the local parish, the hermeneutic of rupture continued to be standard operating procedure. And now Pope Francis has called for yet another synod for the purpose of making the hermeneutic, hermeneutic of rupture the official position of the church. Well, here's the rub. Since Vatican II, there have been innumerable books as well as official documents of greater or lesser authority comprised of countless words and taking up who knows how many linear feet of shelf space, all dedicated to promoting this new and improved Catholicism that after 50 years of constant tinkering is apparently still insufficiently open and welcoming and accommodating or in a word, insufficiently worldly. But it all begs the question. From John XXIII's call for an ecumenical council to Pope Francis's call for a synod on synodality, I have yet to encounter a single well-reasoned argument that demonstrates why any of this is actually necessary at all. We're constantly assured that the so-called modern man desperately needs from the church a new language, a new worship, a new paradigm, a new Pentecost, and now, according to the synodalists, a whole new way of being church, quote-unquote, as if modern man is some hitherto unknown kind of creature that emerged like Venus from the clamshell in 1959. But when and how was that fact established? More importantly, where is it written that the Church requires what Benedict XVI derisively called a new start from zero? Fifty years of watering down or explaining away the moral demands of the gospel as, as if they're incomprehensible or simply too difficult for today's modern man, and all in the name of being pastoral, of course, has caused unthinkable, immeasurable harm to the body of Christ. Every difficulty in the Church that the spirit of Vatican II was supposed to relieve has become demonstrably worse, almost unbelievably so. The Mark of Peter is currently circling the drain, and those who have presided over this devastation are still saying that the answer is even more and even more drastic versions of the same failed policies. In direct contradiction to all the concrete evidence, we have been continually assured that Vatican II was the greatest thing to ever happen in the church, and that it was absolutely necessary. And the same goes for the new mass and the new theology and the new morality, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth, all the way up to the synod on synodality. But to date, no one has bothered to explain why it was all necessary, not not concretely, not in a way a child could understand it. And is that asking too much? Are the modern needs of the modern man and the modern church of the modern world simply too complex for a simpleton like me to grasp? And if so, then why expect lay people to actively participate in a process that literally defies definition? Honestly, when Archbishop Pierre, the papal nuncio to America, tried to explain it to the U.S. bishops just last month, even he had to admit it may be that we're still struggling to understand synodality. Now, we'll get into what, you know, synodality and in the, in the synod on synodality actually is or isn't a little later on. But in the meantime, consider this. The Holy Trinity is the foundational doctrine of our faith. There are three persons in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Father is God and the first person of the Blessed Trinity. The Son is God and the second person of the Blessed Trinity The Holy Ghost is God and the third person of the blessed Trinity. There are not three gods, but three persons in one God. This is a supernatural mystery. That is, it's it's a reality that is above and beyond the human intellect. And yet the church has formulated this doctrine in such a way that a seven-year-old can comprehend and believe it. And this is by no means the, the only such definition. Where's the clarity regarding the nature of a a synodal church? Or am I just too stupid to understand why 2,000 years of Catholic teaching should be ignored, denied, or reinterpreted in order to spare the feelings of certain people who are mired in certain sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance just as loudly in the 21st century as they did in the first? It seems we've been down this road before in the tens of thousands of words already committed to the synodal cause, there has yet to appear a concrete reason why we should be holding a synod on synodality at all, much less why the church must become a synodal church. But I can sum up the reason why it's a bad idea in less than a dozen words. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And that's no nonsense. Okay, so we're going to be talking about this Synod on Synodality today, and later on I'll tell you how I really feel about it. <laughs> but usually in the first segment, um, I offer some commentary about the readings for the upcoming Sunday in the extraordinary form, typically. But today we're going to look at uh, at the Gospel from today's Mass in the extraordinary form, which is taken from Mark 10, verses 15 through 21. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall not enter into it. And embracing them and laying his hands upon them, he blessed them. And when he was gone forth into the way, a certain man running up and kneeling before him asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may receive life everlasting? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? None is good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Bear not false witness. Do no fraud. Honor thy father and thy mother. But he answering said to him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, looking on him, loved him, and said to him, One thing is wanting unto thee. Go, sell whatever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. That's far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, I just want to focus on a couple of things. First, what was Jesus' object in blessing the children? Well, backing up to verses 13 and 14, the Gospel says, They brought to him young children that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them that brought them. Whom, When Jesus saw, he was much displeased and said to them, Suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not. Or of such is the kingdom of God. Now, the mothers begged his blessing for their children in the hope that it might preserve them from sickness or other earthly harm. But our Lord's object was far higher. He imparted his divine blessing to these little ones in order that they might remain humble, innocent, and pious and become worthy members of his kingdom. It was because children are simple, humble, believing, innocent, that our lord loved them so much he did not say the, the the kingdom of heaven was intended literally for children but for such as they not merely for children in age but for those who are childlike in heart that is simple believing and humble according to the venerable Bede, by the kingdom of heaven we may here understand the truths of the gospel and as an innocent child never contradicts its teachers, nor opposes them with vain reasonings and empty words, but faithfully and readily receives their instructions, so must we with uh, obey implicitly and without opposition receive the word of the Lord. Humility is is a beautiful and necessary virtue, and he who wishes to be a follower of Jesus must, re, must renounce pride and be humble of heart. You can see now why I decided to, to talk about uh, this gospel today. See, that's why the man who had kept all the commandments from his youth, the one who had followed the, the traditions of the faith, the uh, scripture says that Jesus loved him. Our Lord himself says in St. John's gospel, if you love me, keep my commandments. And St. John says in his first epistle, and by this we know that we have known him if we keep his commandments. How very different is this humble acceptance uh, uh, from the desire to invent for ourselves a quote unquote new way of being church? And after the break, we'll find out just how different. And that's no nonsense. All right, I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. For years, public libraries have quietly amassed vast collections of pro-LGBT books for children and young adults. These range from classic picture books like daddy's roommate and heather has two mommies to the more recent i'm not a girl a transgender story the rainbow parade Twas the night before pride and last but not least my own way celebrating gender freedom for kids (laughs) my own way bishop sheen used to say i did it my way is a theme song of hell Now, you can add to this uh, a plethora of slickly packaged pride propaganda masquerading as young adult novels as well. Far too many to mention. Now Every June, these books are trotted out and put on open display in public libraries, including school libraries, in celebration of Pride Month. And predictably, when some folks complain about their tax dollars being used to promote such nonsense, they are accused of banning books, or at least wanting to ban books and and probably burn them, too, in a big old bonfire, you know, Nazi-style. Which is funny, considering that I have a list here of the top ten most banned books from U.S. public libraries. And remember, these are books that have actually been banned from some school and public libraries. And they are, in no particular order, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Catcher in the Rye, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Slaughterhouse-Five, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Lord of the Flies, Animal Farm, The Scarlet Letter, 1984, and Fahrenheit 451. Now, obviously, not only are all of these books modern classics, some of them were even required reading for me when I went to public school. Why on earth pan these books? what, What do these books have in common? What's the common thread? Well, first off, they include such taboo subject as uh, the search for truth and the abuse of authority and the roots and consequences of racism and prejudice, how good and evil can coexist within a single community or even a single individual. And and even worse, several are thinly veiled or or just outright warnings against the evils and the methods of totalitarianism, (laughs) including banning books. In other words, encourage you to think for yourself about important truths and therefore constitute a powerful corrective to the woke agenda. So they must be banned, because forewarned is forearmed. Speaking of which, I want to share a bit from a Catholic News Agency article called The Synod on Synodality, Your Questions Answered. Perhaps here I thought we will find the sort of concise and objective definitions one might encounter in the classic Q&A of the Baltimore Catechism. <laughs> yeah, or not. Uh, the byline is Courtney Mares or Mayors, Rome Newsroom, January 20, 2023. That's the day the Vatican released the Instrumentum Laboris, or working document that outlines the key questions for the upcoming 16th General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops, more commonly known as the Synod of Bishops on Synodality. Now, before we get underway, a definition is in order. I have uh, Father John Hardin's Modern Catholic Dictionary here. A synod is an assembly of ecclesiastics, not necessarily all bishops, gathered together under ecclesiastical authority to discuss and decide on matters pertaining to doctrine, discipline, or liturgy under their jurisdiction. So, <clears throat> so a, a diocesan synod could be made up of priests under the local bishop, for example. Uh, the words synod and council were for centuries synonymous and the terms are still interchangeable. So some of the doctrine documents of Vatican II, for example, refer to the council as this sacred synod. Now, on the other hand, a synod of bishops is an assembly of bishops chosen from various parts of the world that meets in Rome every several years to render more effective assistance to the supreme pastor of the church and a consultative body which will be called by the proper name of Synod of Bishops. Since it will be acting in the name of the entire episcopate, it will at the same time show that all bishops in hierarchical communion share in the solicitude for the universal church. Synod and Synod of Bishops. Now, By contrast, and this is according to the Catholic News Agency, quote, the Synod on Synodality initiated by Pope Francis is a multi-year worldwide undertaking during which Catholics are asked to submit feedback to their local dioceses on the question, what steps does the Spirit invite us to take in order to grow in our journeying together? This massive synodal process has already undergone diocesan, national, and continental stages, and will culminate in two global assemblies at the Vatican, the first in October of this year and the second in October 2024. Their goal, to advise the Pope on the topic for a synodal church, communion, participation, mission. Now, it might be well to note that synodality was redefined in 2018 by the International Theological Commission of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith as, quote, the action of the Spirit in the communion of the body of Christ and in the missionary journey of the people of God. Now, that doesn't sound anything like the traditional definition, does it? The 2021 preparatory document called uh, our defined synodality as nothing less than, quote, the form, style, and structure of the church, unquote. Hermeneutic of rupture, anyone? You know, welcome to the brave new world. Now, this latest document from the Vatican says that synodality can also be understood as something that, quote, does not derive from the enunciation of a principle, a theory, or a formula, but develops from a readiness to enter into a dynamic of constructive, respectful, and prayerful speaking, listening, and dialogue. At the root of this process is the acceptance, both personal and communal, of something that is both a gift and a challenge. To be a church of sisters and brothers in Christ who listen to one another and who in so doing are gradually transformed by the Spirit. In other words, the more they define the terms synod and synodality, the more ambiguous and unclear they become. Hence the statement we quoted earlier from the Papal Nuncio to America that after tears of preparation, quote, we're still struggling to understand synodality. Now, the new Instrumentum Laboris was written by a committee of 22 people and is presented as a synthesis of the eight final documents produced by the Continental Assemblies that met earlier this year. Their discussions were based in turn on an earlier 44-page working document published in 2022 titled Enlarge the Space of Your Tent, (laughs) which was itself a summary of more than 100 other summary reports shared with the Vatican by bishops' conferences, religious congregations, departments of the Roman Curia, lay movements, and other groups and individuals. Local dioceses dioceses, organized their synod discussions using the Vatimacum, or handbook, and the aforementioned preparatory document issued in 2021. And the viewpoint of every one of those folks is absolutely represented in that latest document, I'm sure. <laughs> the 50-page, 27,000-word instrumentum is divided in two sections. The first summarizes the insights from the Continental Assemblies and outlines what a synodal church is and how it should proceed, and the second section is a series of 15 worksheets with questions for discernment. <clears throat> so what, are, what topics do some of the questions for discernment include? Well, women deacons, and by the way, deacons are ordained clergy, so read that women's ordination, uh, putting an end to priestly celibacy, And LGBTQ Outreach, which of course is a euphemism for blessing same-sex marriages and for openly gay clergy. According to the article, quote, the document highlights a desire for new institutional bodies to allow for greater participation and decision-making by the people of God. One of the proposed questions for discernment for the Synod of Bishops asks, what can we learn about the exercise of authority and responsibility from other churches and ecclesial communities? Oh, so like the Anglicans, uh, who have married clergy and women priests and openly homosexual bishops and blesses same-sex weddings, that that kind of ecclesial community? (sighs) Finally, the article brings up the question, what does the synod on synodality, or how does the synod on synodality differ from past synods of bishops? Remember that a synod of bishops is naturally a meeting of bishops gathered to discuss some topic of theological or pastoral significance in order to advise the Pope— According to the article, quote, for the first time, about 21% of the voting delegates in the 2023 Synod of Bishops on Synodality will not be bishops, and 70 delegates will be chosen directly by the Pope from among a list of 140 laypeople, priests, consecrated women, and deacons selected by the leaders of the Continental Synod meetings. So let's hear that again. For the first time ever, over 20% of the voting delegates in a Synod of Bishops will not be bishops. Now, that sounds to me like they've already discerned a new institutional body to allow for greater participation in decision-making by the people of God, and we're already well on the way to discovering a, a new way of being church. See, that's why I asked at the beginning of the show the rhetorical question, what if they held a synod and no one showed up? And And my answer was the same thing that would have happened anyway. The Instrumentum Laboris opens with the words, the people of God have been on the move since Pope Francis convened the whole church in Synod on October 2021. Now, Robert Royal, in an article from June 28th, called uh, A Synod of No Surprises, raised a question. He says, how is it that after what has been billed as perhaps the widest consultation in human history, that there's not a single surprising word in the working documents more than 27,000 words? You know, I might mention that the the people of God who were sent questionnaires for the synod on synodality represent about 1% of the people of God. But Mr. Royal put it plainly. He said the instrumentum laboris could have been written exactly as it now stands two years ago when the people of God allegedly got on the move. At this point, we can also predict with near-perfect accuracy what the results will be two years from now when the consultations end. We've seen it all before in prior synods. It's all rather tired especially if the Church is supposed to have been following a God of surprises and experiencing the new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, neither of whom, on the evidence of the Instrumentum Laboris, seem to have had much new input. Now, there's a lot of talk in the Synod documents about the Spirit and the movement of the Spirit, etc. But let's face it, none of us has a direct conduit to the third person of the Holy Trinity. We pray for his guidance, we do our best to cooperate with his grace, and then we honestly assess how well we have exercised his gifts by examining whether they have produced the promised fruits of the Spirit. That's true of us as individuals and of the bishops as a body and the Church as a whole. The synodalists, uh, which I suspect suspect may go down in history as the name identifying the current phase of the modernist heresy, uh, the synodalists, they have assured us that the main problem the Church faces today— is discovering new ways of dialoguing and accompanying because the great truths of the faith are settled. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should. We've been listening for a long time, all the way back to 1959, when John 23rd opened the Vatican uh, Second Vatican Council. The first thing he said was that, you know, we're not talking about the the content of the deposit of faith the great truths of the faith are settled this is going to be a pastoral council but we all know what happened okay so more on that when we return with more no nonsense catholic right here on virgin most powerful Radio. stay with us Welcome back to no nonsense Catholic. I'm sure you know about the rally of reparation that Terry and Jesse and uh, Bishop Strickland, of course, all participated in at Dodger stadium. They gathered there on June the 16th to make acts of reparation for the blasphemous outrages against the sacred heart of Jesus committed by the anti-Catholic drag queen troop known as the sisters of perpetual indulgence who were being honored at the Dodgers pride night event. Now, I mentioned last week that they were joined by a crowd of some 5,000 fellow believers. And some of the local media outlets misreported them as hundreds of protesters. But the official count reported by the LAPD says the number of supporters actually reached 6,500. Now, I bring this up, uh, well, because making reparation is a good thing, and I believe a necessary thing. And I admit that this event has actually caused me to, to personally turn a corner. See, writing books and articles and social media posts, even doing radio shows and podcasts, which of course is our wheelhouse here at VMPR, all of these endeavors are important and they are necessary, but they are no longer enough. According to Dr. Matthew Petrusik, the reason is... Uh, he actually says the reason is because, uh, so I guess he's not a professor of English, but the reason is because no one who has the direct power to stop this carnival of prejudice and depravity cares what any of us think. They do not care about logic, about arguments, about science, about hypocrisy, about civilizational stability, about tradition, about religion, or even about whether outside of their peer group they are widely disliked. So what to do? Well, uh, Dr. Petrušic made a suggestion in an article at Word on Fire called Close Your Wallets, Cleanse the Temples, and Hit the Streets. He says we are, in short, beyond the debate stage of this conflict. There's no reasoning with or within pride ideology. There is no compromising with it. There's no splitting the difference on whether it should be a Celebratorily legal to cut off a healthy boy's genitals and carve a neo vagina into his flesh. Either we allow that savagery or we don't. As Christians, we don't. We can't. The whole movement that pushes this sadistic madness must be overcome. It must be marginalized and assigned pariah status like the Ku Klux Klan or suicide cults. It's pretty strong. But how do we proceed? He says, as Bishop Barron has suggested, we make them pay. And Dr. Petrusik says, we boycott and we protest. And he, you know, he laments that his new position, though, and, and admits, like me, well, in his words, I have long considered myself above boycotting and protesting because I believed it to be naive and self-righteous. You know, I, I got stuff to do. I have a job, I, I have a family to support. I need to you know be able to go and, and you know buy groceries and gas and, and get on with my life. And I've even considered such tactics to be counterproductive. I mean, protesting especially seems like a tactic of the enemy. You can't cast out Satan with Satan. However, as Dr. Petrusik points out, the cultural, political and economic grounds have radically shifted. Things will not get better on their own. No one is coming to save us. The institutional powers will not cease degrading and harassing us unless we stop them. So we make them pay. By which he means stop giving money, any money, to businesses that support pride ideology. And he cites the effectiveness of the recent boycotts of Target and Bud Light. He notes, notes that simply not buying a company's products can have a real effect. He says our goal should be thus to make the pride flag as commercially repellent as the Confederate flag. There are over 200 million Christians and like-minded allies in the United States. Imagine if a fraction of us started spending differently. You know, but he also said that we need to recognize that we must inform religious leaders who have a soft spot for pride to stop making excuses, or worse, promoting this poison with strategically ambiguous, deceptively incomplete trap clap of being welcoming and affirming. Well, sounds familiar. In other words, we have to let them know that we know that they're wolves in sheep's clothing and that they're putting children and families at risk, not to mention facilitating the persecution of the church. Now, it goes without saying that we should not disrespect those who are struggling with Uh, traditional sexual and gender categories catechism catechism of the catholic church number 2358 says their inclination is objectively disordered and for most of them constitutes a trial like everyone they must be accepted with respect compassion and sensitivity and every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided in other words we must make the distinction between the sinner and his sin According to Dr. Petrusik, every person is welcome in the house of the Lord. Every idea is not. So our response to the current threat must include regarding LGBTQ plus dogma with unmitigated scorn. Now, will following through on that be difficult? Yeah, uh, going against the current is always difficult. But even Pope Francis has said pride ideology is dangerous. Dr. Petrusik says it's a menace to the mental and physical health of young people especially. It's abhorrent to the natural law and to the gospel. And therefore, it is worth the sacrifice that protests and boycotts entail, if only to avoid causing scandal to those who might be persuaded to believe that the Catholic Church is actually on board with pride ideology. You know, Father James Martin, call your office. As St. Paul said about boycotting meat sacrificed to pagan idols, he said, if this food can lead my brother to sin, I will never again eat meat, lest I cause the downfall of one of my brethren. That's 1 Corinthians 8.13. And that's no nonsense. And it's another problem with the synod and synodality, the impression that it gives. Consider, <clears throat> Pope Francis named Cardinal Jean-Claude hollerich the Archbishop of Luxembourg, as the Relator General of the Synod on, of Synodality, that's that's one of, if not the most important, uh, leadership and organizational positions. He's a fellow Jesuit and recently added to the Pope's Council of Cardinal Advisors. And the Cardinal said in an interview back in March that he believes that a future Pope could allow women priests, and that he finds questionable the Church's teaching that homosexuality is quote unquote intrinsically disordered. Okay, that's the guy in charge of the Synod. Cardinal Mario Gretsch, the, the, the Secretary General to the Synod of Bishops, was one of two authors of, when he was a Bishop of Malta, uh, he was one of the two authors of the Maltese Bishops' controversial pastoral guidelines on Amoris Letitia, which state right out that divorced and remarried Catholics, in certain cases and after honest discernment, can in fact receive communion without benefit of annulment. Further, Gretsch has publicly condemned criticism of the German synodal way as denunciation. Okay, now if you don't know, the delegates of the German synodal way voted overwhelmingly to adopt blessings of same-sex marriage, to normalize lay preaching, which essentially means women giving the homily instead of the priest, and advised Rome to re-examine priestly celibacy and called for women's ordination. Bishop George Batzing, the president of the German's bishop conference, said, quote, the church is visibly changing and that is important. And then one of the central lay people, Irma Setter Karp, president of the Central Committee of German Catholics, said that the results of the, the Synod of Germany shows that the synodal path will continue. It does not end here. She said, this is just the beginning. Now, interestingly, there is uh, less attention being paid to the German Synod's vote on gender ideology, and the implementation—sorry, implement, oh, rented lips—the implementation text dealing with gender diversity, which passed with support from 96 of the 96 percent of the 197 voting delegates. So, a majority of the bishops voted yes for this thing, while the rest abstained. And this is important. It's, it's something that we need to understand. You see, there would have been enough votes to block the measure if the bishops who abstained had just voted against it. But the organizers had removed the secret ballot. Everything had to be done out in the open, which some say you know, created a fear-driven atmosphere and prohibited some of the bishops from voting freely. Uh, and this, this resolution, by the way, which, again, the the Secretary General for the Synod and Synodality uh, is upset that people would criticize this. This resolution calls for, quote, concrete improvements for intersex and transgender faithful, including changing baptism records to match someone's self-identified gender. Changing their baptismal record to to reflect their new uh, self-identified gender. Banning gender identity from consideration for pastoral ministry, which also bars, quote, external sexual characteristics, unquote, from being used as a criterion for, quote, accepting a man as a candidate for priesthood. Now think about that. That is a measure that will obviously open the door to ordaining women to the priesthood. They're already calling for for the ordination of women deacons, you know, which is like, oh, well, that's a distinction, right? Oh, well, you know, I, it, it, they say women deacons, it doesn't say, well, I haven't read it at all, but I mean, are they talking about permanent deacons? You know, because deacon is the transitional uh, a place between being a seminarian and being a priest. You're first ordained a deacon, then you're ordained a priest. And if they're going to ordain women deacons, that creates a pathway. It just does. All right. And, and here now we're going to say that, that uh, this lady who wants to be a priest, all, all she has to do is demand that they change uh, her sex on their on baptismal certificate from female to male, and then say, you know, you can't use that against me in consideration for the priesthood. So obviously that's going to open a door to ordaining women to the priesthood. So long as they quote unquote identify as men. Now you might say, well, that's, those Germans are crazy. That's the German synodal way. Tralala, tra-la. the, the Pope said, shame on you. All of which is true. But do you really think that these things won't come up in the synod and synodality? That already in the working document is talking about uh, ending priestly celibacy, ordaining women to the diaconate, having lay preachers, all all that stuff's already part of the discussion. All right, when we come back, more on this uh, and uh, some other stuff too. (laughs) when we return after these messages. Hey, stay with us. Back to no-nonsense Catholic. Back in 1959, when Pope John XXIII called the Second Vatican Council, he said the truths of the deposit of faith are one thing, the way in which they're presented is another. In other words, we're we're not going to change the settled teaching of the church. We're just going to restate it in a way that is more acceptable to modern man. When Pope Paul VI introduced the Novus Ordo Missae, he said the structure of the Mass is still the traditional one. It's still the Mass. We're just making it more acceptable to modern man. And how'd they do that? Well, by removing from the prayers anything that could represent a stumbling block to our separated brethren, that is the Protestants. And at the same time, they removed references to hell, judgment, God's wrath, sin is the greatest evil, as the, on the basis that no one should be made to feel uncomfortable at Mass. Hence the removal of St. Paul's admonition about the unworthy reception of communion in 1 Corinthians 11:29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself not discerning the body of the Lord. Right now, the United States bishops are in the midst of promoting a Eucharistic revival because a majority of practicing, practicing Novus Ordo Catholics do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Well, it's somewhat understandable if the only time they hear scriptures at Mass and this verse and others like it have been specifically removed from the lectionary. After the publication of Samorum Pontificum, right, uh, uh, Benedict's Motu proprio liberating the traditional mass, Dr. Brandt Petrie did a lecture on the similarities and differences between the ordinary and extraordinary forms of the Roman Rite, and concluded that much of what is explicit in the traditional mass was rendered implicit in the Novus Ordo. Why? Well, because Catholics already know all about the deposit of faith, and, and we really needed to de-emphasize all that troublesome stuff you know, about exclusively Catholic doctrines that might upset the, the non-Catholics on one hand, and you know, sin and hell uh, that might upset the non-Christians on the other, this they would say, you know, they told us it was going to usher in a new springtime of conversions to the Catholic faith, except it didn't. And on the contrary, one generation of poor catechesis later, and the deposit of faith became a closed book to the majority of Catholics. So perhaps you can understand why I'm not mollified by the current assurances that the synod on synodality is not concerned with settled doctrines, especially considering that the instrumentum laboris states that modern man's resistance to receiving church teaching could be because there is, quote, a changed reality that requires, quote, further reflection on the deposit of faith and the living tradition of the church. And since when is the male-only priesthood not a settled doctrine? I've repeatedly shared the infallible teaching of John Paul II from Ordinatio Sacerdotalis that should have settled that question once and for all. But considering that women lectors and extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and girl altar servers and communion in the hand, etc., etc., all those things were in common use long before the church gave approval. So why should the current crop of progressives not continue to follow the axiom of disobey and you'll get your way? It's worked before. In fact, it's never failed. The Germans no longer even give lip service to the immutability of the deposit of faith, but boldly claim that the Church not only can change, but has changed. And furthermore, this is just the beginning. That there is no norm for gender, and that the tradition of the Catholic Church is holding back progress. Cardinal Reinhard Marx said that the motion calling for the practice of the all-male priesthood to be reexamined, rather than simply ended, um, at the universal level of the church, that was necessary to build consensus for changes to the church's dogmatic teaching related to the priesthood. You, say, you, say, you understand? you're saying, you know, we got to we got to go a step at a time because we're going to change the dogma, as if that were possible. You know, but there's this uh, a laywoman delegate, voting delegate, Suzanne Schumacher Goodman, who I should point out, you know, had a had the same vote as the bishop did. She countered by saying that discriminating against someone because of their gender must be put to an end in the Catholic church. And another delegate added, the patriarchy must be destroyed. See, I think the thing that concerns me most of all is to talk about this being a movement of the spirit. Pope Francis has recently stated that he sees the spirit at the, at the heart of or as the heart of synodality. But when folks start talking about a new way of being church, making the claim that changing the church's dogmatic teachings, uh, that, that that's a work of the Spirit. I think we're in dangerous waters. Will the Holy Ghost be responsible if a new Spirit-inspired synodal church in which everyone feels seen, recognized, welcomed, accepted, accompanied, cared for, listened to, valued, not judged? If that doesn't emerge from the proceedings, is it his fault? Conversely, will it be the work of the Spirit if the Synod on Synodality manages to jettison Catholic doctrines that contradict modern sexual mores, you know, uh, that, that bans them as obsolete remnants of a patriarchal past that makes people feel unwelcome. People, by the way, who have no intention of repenting their sins or amending their lives. I'm not reassured when Cardinal Holerick says, we do not speak about the church's teaching. That is not our task, not our mission. We just speak to welcome everybody who wants to walk with us. That is something different. Well, yeah, it's different, all right. If proclaiming Catholic doctrine is not the task or the mission of a synod of bishops, then what is? According to the Instrumentum Laborum, the synod, quote, represents an opportunity to walk together as a church capable of welcoming and accompanying, accepting the necessary changes in rules, structures, and procedures. And again, if changing rules and structures doesn't concern the church's teaching, then what does it concern? And what does he mean when he adds, The same applies to many other issues that will emerge in the discussion threads. Is it not likely that the issues that emerge will include contested Catholic doctrines already opposed by those in favor of, quote, accepting the necessary changes, unquote? Especially if they do so with the understanding that the Synod on Synodality represents a movement of the Spirit. Father Gerald E. Murray wrote an excellent article called The Synodal Church of Me Myself and I. And in it I see he makes a lot of great points. Kind of all Bishop Athanasius Schneider also uh, wrote a critique of the Instrumentum Laboris, but uh, Father Murray says that the document embodies a now familiar pattern. Certain questions are asked, others are ignored, predictable answers are given and expectations are raised for a new synodal church, quote unquote. Then, after rehearsing many problems with the document and the process itself, he says, the Instrumentum Laborum does ask one important question. How can the churches remain in dialogue with the world without becoming worldly? And he says, the clear answer is, remain faithful to Christ and his doctrine, especially when it's opposed by those who want to change various teachings of the church in the name of making people feel welcome and accepted. See, the church of me, myself, and I, where each person recognizes himself in his personally curated set of beliefs may promise satisfaction. In fact, he says, it's a make-believe delusional religion of self-worship in which God is relegated to the role of divine affirmer of whatever each one decides to believe. God spare us from such an outcome. Well, I started out by saying that the synod on synodality is headed for a predetermined conclusion. It's a phenomenon I first commented on back in 2018 when many of the bishops who attended the Synod on the family said that the final documents included instructions about you know, homosexuals and the divorced and remarried that they didn't even discuss at the Synod itself. Archbishop Chaput is currently writing a book to that effect about his experience in the Synods of 2015 and 2018. Now, all of that said, I do believe there is a movement of the Holy Ghost in the Church today. I believe it is to be found in the only sector of the Church of the West that, despite mounting persecution, is growing instead of actively shrinking. I believe that in 1976, when Benedict XVI was still Father Ratzinger, that he rightly predicted that the Church of the future would be smaller but stronger. I imagine he conceived this remnant church as consisting of a small minority who were valiantly carrying the torch of the real Vatican II and patiently awaiting the reform of the reform. Uh, But I suspect that his smaller, stronger church already subsists. Subsists today among those who still hold the traditional Catholic faith, and primarily among those who regularly assist at the traditional Latin Mass. Those who, unlike the majority of their Novus Odo brethren, humbly accept the church's teaching on contraception, abortion, divorce and remarriage, real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, etc., etc. Those who virtually all, assist at Mass every Sunday and Holy Day and never miss Mass through their own fault. And and who, when they assist at Mass, actively participate. Talking about those who can say the act of faith and mean it without the need for any extraordinary synods or changes in language or accompaniment or coddling. And who are already happy to welcome into the fold any and all who are willing to repent and believe in the gospel as the church has always done. See, this is where I hear the voice of the Spirit. And I'm not talking about some abstraction or the, the spirit of Vatican II. I'm talking about the Holy Ghost, talking about the third person of the Blessed Trinity. And I tell you, I hear him in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, recorded under his direct inspiration by the uh, evangelists in the Holy Gospels. I hear his voice speaking through the faith of our fathers, our sacred tradition. And I hear his voice in the church's perennial, infallible, and immutable teachings. Immutable, that means unchanging. And I personally encounter his life-giving breath, the life-giving breath of the spirit when I assist at the traditional Latin Mass. And it's not about emotions or feelings, or newness for the sake of newness, or change for the sake of change, or a tingle that runs up my leg. It's about the promise of Jesus. Everybody knows that he said that uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But he made us another promise. He said, I am the same. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forever. Being Catholic is not about discovering a new way to be church or or how we can welcome and journey with people who are headed on the broad road and not the narrow path. It's about inviting them to join us on the narrow way. It's about preserving and defending the unchanging deposit of faith that was given us as the parting gift of love from Christ and the apostles. And that's no nonsense. Okay, that's another one. Thank you for being with us. I'm sorry it was a little, uh, little dour today, a little bit of a— but I felt like it needed to be said. So I, I, uh, I hope you agree, and uh, we'll be back next week. We'll do it all again also want to remind you that um, all of our programs are available on demand uh, through the free Virgin Most Powerful smartphone app or by visiting our website vmpr.org I just discovered recently that um, uh, about as many people watch the uh, videos of this program on our uh, which are posted on Rumble, they watch them on our website as uh, listen to the uh, podcast and so uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the uh, the support. And for all of your prayers, and especially your financial support of VMPR, uh, we are truly grateful. So till next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your